team for leading us in worship. Turn your Bibles to the letter of 1 John. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one in front of you. And if you're not sure where to find 1 John, just start at the back. Flip through Revelation, 3 John, 2 John, then you'll find 1 John. Very easy to find. As Pastor mentioned, uh, 1 John, John the writer, uh, treats 1 John cyclically in a circle. He covers many themes throughout uh, the letter of 1 John, but he covers them in circles. He'll hit this point, and then he'll hit another point, and another point, and then he'll come back to it, and then he'll keep doing that throughout. So really, the preaching uh, through this is really based on themes of the letter of 1 John. So we're going to be bouncing throughout 1 John. We're going to start in chapter 1, and then we're going to go through to chapter 5 on the theme of the relationship with the world. And all of 1 John is centered on uh, salvation and how you know that, how you can know that you can have eternal life. And John kind of does put us through some tests of how we can know we can have eternal life. And if you can remember times in your life where you've had a big test, uh, perhaps maybe it's just in school, <laughs> um, that, that great big final exam, I never tested well. Um, I could study and study and study, but tests always somehow just, I don't know, I always had great anxiety. I could do an essay test, no problem, uh, because I can just write what's in my head. It might not look great, but I can write down a lot of information that way. But whenever there was a test with multiple choice questions, everything would throw me. I had a professor in college that his tests were fairly easy because sometimes his, his uh, multiple choice tests would be like A, the actual answer, B, go Bears, C, you know, and I mean, I could do this test. This is great. Um, I loved him. That was Dr. Mazak. Um, uh, but if you can remember these, these tests you've been through, well, what, what do tests really help us do? Well, tests really show us whether or not we know the material. Uh, whether or not they're difficult or not, they really show us, do I really know this material? Or am I just kind of like failing at this? And John, in 1 John here, puts us through these series of tests and how we can know eternal life. 1 John 5, 13 really is the key verse of this book. The things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So the test that we're looking at this morning is the test of the relationship with the world. The test of the relationship with the world. That's what I'm titling this, this message. And the first test that we are, are given, I'm going to have four points this morning. Four points this morning, they're going to involve tests as well. So four points this morning, we're going to look at at these passages to separate this overall test into four separate tests, all right? First of all, the first test I want to look at when we're considering our relationship with the world is the test of light, the test of light. That's in 1 John chapter 1. We're going to read at verses 5 through 7. I'm going to include a few other verses in with it, but let's read 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we've heard from him. And announce to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. The test of light. This test is really a test of moral obedience, if you kind of want to put that in parentheses. A moral obedience test is what it is. 
we're very familiar with light. John actually uses that in John chapter 1. He talks about light. And John is very familiar with using this illustration. And we know what light is. We're using light this morning. Um, we use light on a daily basis. But light has very many definitions, very many uses. It's, it's, we, we, we reference it as, as something heavy or light. Um, we, we could refer to, to the sun as light, a lamp as light, or a candle as light. Uh, light could also refer to something intellectual as in, I see the light of something. Or, hey, my light bulb just came on, I get it now, right? Uh, we, we, it can be used in that sense. Uh, it could uh, also uh, refer to light as something that is essential to life in a moral sense. It becomes symbolic. And that is what John is using this as, as a symbolic meaning, because he uses the phrase darkness as well. It's a symbol of life. Light as a symbol of life. Darkness as a symbol of death. And so this is what we want to consider. What is John saying? Why is he using this phrase light? And what does it have to do with me? It's talking about moral truth. John is talking about God being light. He is moral truth. Morally, moral, morally light is purity and darkness is evil or darkness is wickedness. So that's what I want us to think about. We're contrasting this. In, in John's day, there was a group of, uh, of people called the Gnostics. And perhaps he was thinking about them when he was phrasing this this way because people would have read this and thought immediately of Gnostics because they saw light and darkness as truth and error, not as moral purity or moral wickedness. Um, they saw that as light and darkness. Life represents light, the spirit, and true knowledge represents darkness. That's what these Gnostics thought. That's wrong, but that's what they would teach. And so perhaps John is saying here, that's not what it is. He be, he's very specific. So sin for a Gnostic was just being ignorant of knowledge. Well, that's, we know that that's not the truth. John contradicts all of that, and he says here, God is light, in verse 5. He is the essence of moral purity. And why should we not walk in darkness? Well, we, we know on a daily basis when we're talking about actual light, it's no good to walk in darkness. Um, we, we know the mistakes that can be made, that you have a hard time finding your way when it's dark, and you have no light, and you find those little pieces of Legos that your children have left laying on the floor because they couldn't see them because Lego has now created all of these awesome things with very tiny pieces that are really sharp. And you find them if you're not wearing shoes walking around in the darkness. You can find them in the daytime, too, by the way. That's how small they are. But what are we talking about with darkness and light? What John here is saying is you need to know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And folks, God is light. He is the one from where we know the difference between right and wrong. And I want us to look at the wisdom of God in this passage, but I, I want, in, in this part of our, our, our message, I want us to see three phrases that were used falsely. I want us to look at three false claims by, I, I'm, I'm saying three false teachings of this John's day, and he refutes every single one 
because he's talking about moral light. The first one I want us to look at in this test of light is the first false teaching, I have fellowship with him in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie. No one who is consciously walking in sin, consciously, continually walking in sin, can have fellowship with God. Fellowship involves both parties having a common interest and common activity. Because uh, we think of fellowships oftentimes as good Baptists do. It's always centered around eating or Dom's donuts. Um, that's our fellowship or talking, right? But true fellowship in a biblical sense of the word fellowship as it's used here is, is two people or a group that has a common interest and a common activity. So if I'm saying I have fellowship with God and I walk in darkness, which is the opposite of moral purity, which is the opposite of God, God is light, and I'm walking in darkness, I'm lying to myself. I don't have fellowship with God. I want you to write down a couple verses here. 2 Corinthians 6.14 is one. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Don't be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership, that's fellowship, have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Write down also 2 Thessalonians 3.6. 2 Thessalonians 3.6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you received of us. Someone who is walking different than what they say they are. Ephesians 5.11-12, Ephesians 5.11-12 says, Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. So if I say I'm a Christian... And I knowingly am living a life of sin, a life of darkness. God here is saying, I'm a liar. I want you to know, this morning's message is very, very difficult to teach. Because it steps on toes. This is not easy to teach. It's not easy to preach. And I am not perfectly uh, a perfect person. So that's why it's hard to teach and preach, because I know ah, I'm not always following God either all the time. But what I want us to know is, is, is the writer, and God is saying here, if I am continuously, knowingly living a life of sin, but I say I'm in fellowship with God, I'm lying to myself. And he says, I don't do the truth. I don't obey the truth. I prove by my actions and words that the truth is not in me. I'm living a lie. I walk in darkness. The second, the second false claim is in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's the next false claim. It's a direct contradiction of God's word. If I say I have no sin, I say I'm without sin. Well, we know that's a lie. Romans 3, 10 through 12 is a verse to remember here. Romans 3, 10 through 12 as written, there's no, none righteous, not even one, there's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's no, none who does good. There's not even one. See, in my head I have the King James Version, and that's because through Awana, that's what we memorized, and I'm just trying not to mix the two. There's none righteous. No, no one does righteously. No one. Not even one. So you cannot say, I am without sin. Because you are not speaking the truth. God's very, very word is very clear. Of course, Romans 3.23, all have sinned. 
and fall short of the glory of God. The beginning of this message is very difficult. I've said that. It's going to leave you heavy and go, ah, really? (laughs) There's an ending. It's coming. Take heart. The third, the third phrase that is, uh, what did I say they were? The third phrase, the third phrase that is a false claim. That's it. My brain, my brain, brain paused is in verse 10. The third false claim. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. They're very similar. This, this verse stated in verse 10 is in the past where verse 8 was stated in the present. I have not sinned. Well, we know that that's a lie. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as one man's sin entered in the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. We know the first man was Adam. He is the one who sinned, and that's where sin began in the book of Genesis. We don't have time to go there, but that's where it is. (laughs) So if I'm saying I have not sinned, it says here very specifically, you are calling God a liar. You are calling God a liar by saying, I have not sinned. I am placing God, if I say this, I am placing God, who the Bible says, by the way, cannot lie, Titus 1-2. I'm placing God on the same level as the devil, by the way, John calls him the father of lies in John 8, 44. Jesus calls the devil the father of lies in John 8, 44. Don't place God on the same level as the devil. What is the result of these views? Well, we, as we've already said, in verse 6, I'm living a lie. Everything I meet, I'm doing means nothing. It means that I'm a professor of Christ, but I'm not a possessor. I don't have fellowship with him. I don't possess him in my life. It means the truth is not in me. The truth, Jesus Christ, the gospel is not in me. I have n- it's never found a home in my heart. You cannot say that you are without a sin nature. You cannot say that you are without sin if you're truly saved. You know that's not true. And, and, and the, the third result of this view is that God's word is not in me. I have really rejected God's word because I am saying he's a liar. And I'm not believing his word. What do I have to do? Because this is very heavy, isn't it? If I say I'm a Christian, but I'm walking in darkness, I'm lying to myself, I'm lying to God, I'm calling God a liar, if I'm continuously involved in sin, what do I have to do? Because this is very heavy right now. Well, I have to confess sin. I, I can't get away from 1 John 1, 9 if we confess our sins. He, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I can't leave this passage without pointing out 1 John 1, 9. I cannot leave this point without saying to you there's hope. If we but confess, that literally means to say the same thing as or agree with God about sin. It involves a complete agreement with what God says about you. And that verb is literally our confessing. It's a continuous thing. If we continually confess our sins, this is talking about those of us who know Christ as our Savior. Are we perfect all of a sudden? (laughs) No. Why? Because we continue to sin. But if we confess 
our sins continually. It doesn't mean get saved all over again. It just means confess our sins. When we sin, confess it. Then God will forgive it. We're not going to be perfect, but when we sin, we must confess it to God. When's the last time you confess sins to God? Maybe it was an attitude you had towards your parents. Maybe children is an attitude you had. Uh, maybe parents was an attitude you had towards your children. Uh, maybe it was an attitude you had towards your spouse, a boss, a coworker. Maybe it was something you said or did when no one was around. No one except God. You know, if you write down 2, 1 through 2, and, and kind of kind of look, look your eyes down there, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, the hope, we have hope. The hope is that we do not sin, but God knows that we do sin. John says, I'm writing so that you, you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he's the propitiation for our sins. Not for us only, but the whole world. That's our hope, folks. God knows that we will sin after salvation. And so John puts that in there and says, but look, if you do sin, remember, you have Christ. Resist sin, but when you do sin, remember Confess it, forsake it, and know that you have Jesus Christ as an advocate. He's called alongside to work as an encourager, a strengthener, a comforter. See, this word was used of a friend who testifies to the good character of a person at a trial. Jesus Christ is your friend. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, He's your advocate. He's your friend at your trial, standing up for you to say, look, I paid for that sin. Here's the holes in my hands and in my feet. I shed my blood for this sin. It's forgiven. We had an advocate. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross paid the penalty for your sin and for mine. So that as I look at this passage in 1 John 1, verses 5 through 7, I can say, though I am a sinner, I can have fellowship with God because of Jesus Christ the righteous. Because of his death on the cross to pay for that sin. That's a lot for the first point, isn't it? Test of light. The second is the test of love. And that's in 1 John chapter 2, down in verse 15, one verse. The test of love, this is a behavior of obedience. 1 John 2, verse 15. You've probably heard this before. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The test of love. We have to define two words here very quickly. First of all, the word love, what does that mean? Well, we kind of know what it means. It's, it's a Greek word, agapao. Greeks used many words for love. There are really four. Phileo is a fondness between friends and brothers. That's where we get the word uh, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, phileo. Uh, Stergo was an affection between a parent and a child. Eros was the passion between lovers. 
and agapao is that expression of love between God and his covenant people. It's the deepest form of love. It's based on unconditional love. And that's the word that is used here as love. Do not unconditionally love the world, but love God unconditionally. So our biblical definition of love is that selfless attitude that desires to do good to the one loved. It's a deliberate, self-sacrificial act that's not based on emotion or feeling like the first three Greek words, but it's based on the mind, it's based on the will, it's based on emotions together. It's ultimately a choice. And then we have to look at the definition of the word world. What does that mean? The word used here is cosmos. Its root meaning is ornament or adornment, and it gives us our word. It's where we get our word cosmetic. Makeup, right? So it carries the sense of order, which is the opposite of chaos. Uh, from, from, from there, later on, it became to be used as the universe or our greatest ordered ornament, the entire universe. The word also contains in it the idea of the human world order, social economic, political, and religious systems of the world. And we now come to take this word, world, the cosmos, we come to take this in this context of this verse as the values, attitudes, and philosophy of a world without God. The values, attitudes, and philosophy of a world without God. So let's take those all together. When God is saying we should not love the world, we're talking about not having this self-sacrificial, totally devoted to kind of love for the world's values, for the world's attitudes, or the world's philosophy. Let me, let me repeat that. God is saying we should not love the world. We're talking about not having this self-sacrificial, totally devoted to kind of love for the world's values, attitudes, or philosophy. Because if I do... God says, I'm against him. You see, there are two choices. Loving God or loving the world. They're complete opposites. When I love the world, that means I can't love God. Therefore, I do not love him. Now, if I love the world's value system, that means I don't love God? Yeah, you can't. Now, should we desire a good job? Yes. Should we desire a godly spouse? Yes. Should we desire food? Yeah. Yeah. Should we desire family, health, sleep? Yes. The answer is only no if I desire those more than I desire God. The answer is no if I don't include God with those desires. That's why I said godly spouse godly family, I could have put. If we desire those things apart from God, without God in mind, the answer is no, we shouldn't desire that. Without God in mind. Our nature is about desire. God created us with the nature of desire. It can go bad ways, and it can go good ways. God created us with this nature of desire to be used for him. There's not a single person in this room who doesn't desire something, right? 
I mean, you look at the TV. Those of you who have a TV, there's those commercials on that now we're being forced to watch or pay, like, more money to, to not watch them on Hulu or whatever we have, right? Don't you hate that? I don't want to watch these commercials. <laughs> That's why I got out of cable. We're forced to watch. Why? Because they know you will desire whatever is on that commercial. I mean, plain and simple, right? Saturday morning cartoons as a kid. Man, they pump that desire in me. Right? I had to have that toy. I had to have that cereal. Mom and dad never let me have them. But <laughs> We're all about desire. We all have a longing or a need, and we can try to satisfy that need one of two ways. We can try to satisfy it God's way, or we can satisfy it our way. Ken Collier of the Wilds always said, there's two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. And that comes down to this. If we try to, if, if we can think of a vacuum at the bottom of a pool, there's a vacuum down there to keep the water circulating. And picture that being the center of our heart. And we're always thirsty. But if we try to suck in the air of the world, we're not going to be able to drink the water of heaven. And our motor is going to burn up. Because we were designed to suck the water of God and not the air of the world. Don't love, have a great affection for the things of this world. Because if you do, you're following the world and you're not following God. You don't love God. Third, the test of living righteous. Third, the test of living righteous. I tried to use L's here, but the, the living just wouldn't, wouldn't do it, so I had to include righteous there. First John chapter 3. Skip ahead a little bit further. First John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him, Christ, there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God, Jesus, appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one is born of God who practices sin because his seed abides in him. God's seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. There is a lot right here. We are identified and identifiable by our family resemblances most of the time. Most of the time, we're identified by family resemblances. You can look at my son, and you can look at my daughter, and you can see them walking by, and you can think in your head, yep, there goes a Martin. Yep, that's, that's a Martin for sure, for sure. And by the way, that's not just physicalities, right? That also goes with mannerisms, right? And you go, again, you can look at my son or daughter. And, he, and I've several times had people come up to me sometimes, you know, your son does the same thing you do in this way or that way or has that same roll your eyes kind of look or whatever, right? Same mannerisms are there. We're identifiable by traits and characteristics. By the way, spouses, this is not, uh, this is not when your kids do wrong. You're not allowed to look at your wife or husband and say, that's you. <laughs> Don't do that, okay? Don't make that mistake. All right, we're identified by traits. 
And John here is writing about the trait of living righteous. And I, wanna, I want us to look at this moral test of two families, the sons of God versus the sons of the devil. We're going to use the same points for both, okay? So follow along with me as we look at these, these family characteristics and this living righteous. First of all, we're going to look at the sons of God. And first of all, how do I, how do I become one? Well, we kind of have to go back to chapter 2, verse 29. It says, it, it, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Born of him is used a couple different times in this part of our passage. What does that mean? It means to be born again. It's a spiritual birth. You become a son of God through spiritual birth. That's the first point under this, through spiritual birth. John uses this phrase in his gospel all the time. I won't go to all of those passages of Scripture except for John chapter 3. You remember Nicodemus who comes to him, Jesus, by night and says, what do I have to do? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand. He says, how can I get back into my mother's womb? That's impossible. Makes sense. But Jesus explains he's not talking about physical birth. We know Jesus was talking about a spiritual birth. You have to be born again. We're talking about salvation. You have to come to a point in time in your life where you realize you're a sinner. That was our first point we covered. We're sinners. Plain and simple. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. God says, I am a sinner. And because I'm a sinner, I face eternal death, separation from God forever. But we've read why Jesus came, and we're going to cover this. Jesus came to pay the penalty for sin. We've already talked about it. To pay the penalty for your sin. To die on a cross. To shed his blood as a sacrifice for sin. So that you don't have to face eternity in hell. He died on that cross and pleased God's judgment of sin. So that for those of us who accept Christ's sacrifice on the cross for salvation, for our sin. God now looks at us, not as sinners, but as righteous in Christ. Even though we aren't righteous, God sees us as such because of Christ. I don't deserve that, do I? But that's how I become a son of God. And when I do that, it begins to produce a righteous behavior that comes from the heart that's truly saved. I love the phrase in verse 1 of chapter 3, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called these sons of God. How great, that's a Greek word for something foreign, alien, inexplicable to mankind. I love that phrase that John uses. And when I read that as the Greek word, I'm like, wow! Like, we have no words for that. Just wow! (laughs) John here is saying, look, behold, How awesome and inexplicable the love of God is that he sent his son for you. We can't explain it. We can just go, wow. He chose to love us. And I'm a son of God, not because of who I am. It's despite who I am. It's only because of Christ that I can be a son of God. And for those sons of God, the second point under this, how is our treatment of sin? Being a Christian, being a true Christian, has a behavioral impact in my life. If I am truly saved, I will manifest it by right living, by living righteous. 
Verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. John here is saying, don't listen to these phony false teachers who give you false information. Those who say, yes, I love God, but you know what? I, I can live how I want because I'm saved. Doesn't matter, right? No, wrong. Doesn't matter how you live. It does. Chapter 2, verse, verse 29, back, those who practice righteousness are born of him. You know that everyone who practices righteousness, if you absolutely know that he, God, is righteous, that's an absolute truth we can hang on. The world says there's no such thing as those. Yes, there is. Because when they say there's no such thing as absolute truth, you can just say, are you absolutely sure? Right? Makes sense. There is such a thing as absolute truth. You can just say baloney. You just used an absolute truth. I'm not falling for that. If you absolutely know that God is righteous, and we do absolutely know that God is righteous, you know, the word know there for, for verse 29, chapter 2, I'm flipping around, I know, but follow me. We know, that's an experiential knowledge, the Greek word that's used there for that. It's an experiential knowledge. You know that everyone that practices righteousness is born in it. It's a pattern. It's not perfect, but it's a patterned direction towards practicing. Does that mean we do it perfectly all the time? No, but that's my treatment of sin. When I do sin, what? I confess it, and I continue to strive to practice living right. Matthew 7, Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. We aren't saved so that we can keep on sinning. Paul writes about that in Romans 6. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be so. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How can you turn back to sin when you have left sin to follow God? That's our treatment of sin. And third, we'll see the attitude towards Christ. Time is slowly slipping away, but our attitude towards Christ, our goal in life is Christ-likeness. Write down 1 Corinthians 10, 31. It says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to God's glory. Do all for God's glory. Chapter 3 that we're in right now in verse 2 talks about hope. Beloved, we are the children of God and as not yet appears what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We have a hope of Jesus' return. We sang about that this morning. I sang with tears in my eyes because I knew this point was coming. And it reminded me of this point. I have a hope when I'm saved, when I'm a son of God, that this world is not my home. This earth is not my home. Heaven is, and God is going to come back to take me there. And I will no longer have to live with sin. That's hope. That's a confident expectation. Not, eh, I hope it happens. It's confidence. We have a hope in his return. We work to be like him in verse 3. Everyone who has this hope is fixed in him and purifies himself just as he is pure. We work and live to be like Christ, though we don't always do it. Philippians 3.10 says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. I desire to be like Christ, though it doesn't always happen. We work to be like him 
This attitude towards Christ follows in verses 5 and 8 of our passage. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin. And down in, in, in verse 8, I lost my place. The, one who, uh, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. We realize what Christ did on Calvary. I've already talked about it, so I don't have to hit that again. But we know by deep experience that he appeared. John knew it for sure because he experienced it firsthand. Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. He came to destroy the works of the devil. I love that. Love that. Christ annihilated the works of the devil on the cross. And that's an attitude characterized by every person who's come to Christ. But the other form, the child of the devil, the children of the devil. How do I become that? Verse 10. How do I become that by physical, by physical birth? You're born that way. We don't always think that way. But that's what happens. When you're born, you're a child of the devil. If you're not saved, you fall into the other side. If you've never trusted Christ, you're automatically a sinner, a child of the devil. So you become it through physical birth, not spiritual birth. Second, the treatment of sin for those who don't know Christ is just this passage that we read, 6 through 10. They continually sin. It's a following pattern of lawlessness. What is your pattern, your loves, your desires? Again, I'm talking about it. Is it a continual pattern of practicing sin, practicing lawlessness, practicing rebellion? That's the attitude towards Christ, the third point here in this child of the devil. There's an attitude there. Christ has no effect on their life. John 8, says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. If we've never trusted Christ, this is where we are at, our attitude towards Christ. Verse 4 talks about lawlessness. That's rebellion. That's an attitude towards Christ, rebellion. It's living in a condition of disregard for the law of God. That's lawlessness. Verse 6, if anyone lives in us, if God lives in us, we don't sin. That's what verse 6 is saying. We don't remain in sin. We don't continuously sin. Attitude towards Christ. And last of all, this characteristic is unloving in verse 10. By the way, the phrasing here in verse 10, nor the one who does not love his brother. You know, pastor talked about forgiveness and love. Brother and sister in Christ, if you don't love another brother and sister in Christ, that unconditional, self-sacrificial kind of love, I don't want to say you're not saved, but I do want to say you're a characteristic of this child of the devil. And God says, this is serious stuff. Now, I know I am not easily loved all the time. I know that. But isn't it easier to love somebody that loves you back? It's really hard to love somebody who doesn't love you back, right? Or maybe you don't think they love you, and so it's harder to love that person. Folks, that's a characteristic of the child of the devil. God says that's a characteristic of one who doesn't know him. 
The last test we want to look at is the test of loyalty. 1 John 5, 2 verses, 18 and 19. 1 John 5, verses 18 and 19. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is the test of loyalty. The test of loyalty or the test of lineage. I couldn't remember. I, I went with loyalty. I have both written down because I don't think I, I, I hit whichever one. I want loyalty. So the test of loyalty. Don't mean to confuse you. But I tried to think long and hard about an illustration for this. I thought about dogs and I found a story about a dog. But then I thought, I want to make this personal. So I am a loyal customer of Pizza Perfect. Yeah, Pizza Perfect. It's just down the road, shameless plug. Uh, <laughs> we always order the same thing. Every Friday night, our family night, we get pizza, and we spend some time together, and we get pizza from Pizza Perfect. And it's gotten to the point where now when I call, most of the time, if it's somebody new, they don't, but most of the time, and this is why I'm a loyal customer, part of why I'm a loyal customer is because they really know my order. I will call, and they'll ask, you know, carry out, it's for pickup. Your name, my name, then they remember, and then I I start in, and then they finish. Because the order is always the same, because, you know, I mean, why change a great thing? So our order, there's a special special thing, we we get the large three-topping cheese bread and and, and a a two-liter pop. Large three-topping cheese bread, because the cheese bread is, and a pop. That's how I describe the cheese bread. With ranch, of course, not uh, marinara. Um, and so, okay, what do you want? And then, and then I start in. Half pepperoni, half mushroom, which can be confusing because sometimes they think that's two toppings, but it's not. It's one. It's just half on one side, half on the other. And then what they do is finish the rest of my order because now I've, I've been a customer so much that they know that order. And it kind of makes me feel good inside. <laughs> makes me feel special. Okay. They know my order. Now, maybe they know your order too, but I don't care because <laughs> they know my order and they finish it. You say, what's the rest? Okay, the rest is, they say, half pepperoni, half mushroom, and then they'll say, all bacon, extra cheese? Yes, that's it. Why? Because I love bacon and my kids love cheese, and so we had to compromise. I'm a loyal customer. Now we, we have so many, now that opened up to so many opportunities of illustrations on loyalty. Loyalty to a team. Loyalty to things. Loyalty to people who just know your name and the customer uh, of a store because they know you every time you come in and they talk with you. Well, folks, God knows your name. He knows who you are. And we look at this confidence in our knowledge of him in verse 18 where it says, we know that no one who's born of God sins. I know I am not to continue in sin. I know that I can overcome if I'm a child of God. That's where the positive comes in play, right here at the end. I know as a child of God, I can overcome sin because I have the power of God in me to defeat sin. I'm not gonna do it all the time, but I know I have that power available. The second I know, I know I'm a child of God in verse 19. I just know I'm a child of God. I have that knowledge. 
And I know that the world lies in the power of the evil one. That's also a sobering thought to a child of God. There's an evidence present in my life that indicates I've been delivered from the control of the evil one, and that is God himself. You see, because in verse 19 it says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but look up at verse 18, sorry. He who was born of God, God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Folks, Satan can't get after you if you're a child of God. Oh, sure, he can put some things in your way like he did with Job and try to cause you to stumble. But folks, even in Job's life, if you remember that story, Satan couldn't touch Job without God's permission. That made me laugh about that whole story. God has a sense of humor. Because God knows Satan can't get to you even without God's permission. So well, then why God, does God allow it? Because sometimes we need to be tested to see if we know the material. Because when we pass, doesn't that strengthen your faith? And when we fail, doesn't that, shouldn't that ought to cause us to confess our sins and to get things right and to strive to keep our lives straight before God? God keeps us. He guards our hearts. He will hold me fast. He holds us fast. Do I deserve that? No, but he does it because I'm his child. He wants what's best for me. He wants to protect me. He wants to keep me from the evil one. Is that not comforting thought? That God just doesn't let us go and do whatever we want after salvation. That he just doesn't let us go and let the devil do whatever he wants. He loves us so much that I can be loyal to God because if he knows me, and he fights for me. And he holds me. It's a reason for loyalty. Who are you loyal to? Are you loyal to God? Four tests this morning. And the overarching theme of the, the test of salvation versus the world. Did you pass? Are you walking in the light? Full obedience, knowing that God is light and truth? Are you loving God more than this world? Folks, this world has nothing to offer us. This world has nothing to offer us. But God has everything to offer us. And as we sang that last song, it's not going to be roses. It's not going to be happy, kick your heels up times all the time. But there's going to be a joyful peace knowing that he guards us, isn't there? There's going to be joyfulness in knowing that no matter what happens in this life, no matter what the world throws at you, God is on your side. He will never leave you. Are you loving God more than this world? And are you living what you say? Are you living righteous? are you loyal? That loyalty based on the convictions of the truth of the word of God. You might be here this morning and you might say, you know what? Andy, I, I don't know Jesus as my savior. I'm here to tell you, you can know Jesus as your savior. 
it's really not hard to give your life to Christ. The hard part comes after when you have to leave the things of this world behind and follow him. That's hard sometimes. But with God, everything's great. Even trials can be great because God is always on your side. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, will you accept what he did on the cross for you? Will you accept his gift of salvation? It's free. You don't have to do anything to earn it. He did it out of his love for you. It cost Jesus his life. But through your acceptance of that gift, you will have life and light so that you can live in this world with a hope that this isn't all there is, that there's more, and that Jesus is coming back, and that there's a greater life after this one that we can't even fathom that all we can say with John is, wow. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. And God, you know this is a, just a really, really hard message to preach because it can step on toes. But also it's a wonderful message to preach because, Father, we need to have our toes stepped on. We need to be reminded of sin in our life. We need to be reminded of you and what you've done so that we can overcome sin. We need to be reminded always that you sent Jesus so that we can confess our sins and that through Jesus' death on the cross, our sins are forgiven. Father, that's a wonderful thing to know. And Father, to know that I don't even deserve to stand here in this pulpit. We don't even deserve to be called children of God, but Father, you loved us so much that you give us everything even Christ, so that we don't even be looked at as sinners, but after salvation, you look on us and see the righteousness of Christ and not our own sin. It's a wonderful thought. Father, may this truth of Scripture ring true in our hearts. If there's one here this morning that does not know Christ as Savior, may you work in that heart to draw them to yourself, to accept Christ as Savior so that they too can be called a son of God, a child of God. We pray these things in your son's name.